You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, we dismiss our young worshipers in training. While we turn in our Bibles to the first chapter of Luke, we return. We're going to begin with verse 26, and we're going to try to get to verse 38 this morning. If we make it, we make it. If we don't, we don't. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Let's hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, Well, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us from your word this morning, and we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, the text we come to this morning is a a, a really popular text. I was thinking in my study yesterday as I was looking, actually doing more than looking this over. I've got about every book on my shelf, I think, scattered all over the place. uh, It looks like a tornado hit the office. It really does. Um, I don't know why I shared that with you. That's not really pertinent to our discussion. But um, uh, I was thinking about this text. You know, if, if you... If you only know a couple of things about Luke's gospel, you're probably familiar with this text and probably familiar with chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, you know, with the birth, Jesus being born and the shepherds and the angels. Um, these are very, very popular texts. And as I was in my study thinking about this yesterday, I was, I was thinking about how many Christmas seasons have I done now? Um, because there's really a handful of passages that you have to choose from. Uh, <laughs> When, when you're doing, when you're going through the season of Advent, and this is our 14th Christmas. Um, this is Tri-State Community Church's 14th Christmas, you know. Um, and it, it, was, it was really dawning on me that, um, you know, a lot of times, because of the, I think it's because of the popularity of this verse and because you're visiting verses like this every year, and you combine it with the holiday traditions, that a lot of times we approach this passage um, in a way that seems to be maybe more reflective of the Hallmark Channel 
than how we would approach any other text of Scripture. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody here. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. It's okay. Um, But I think some of you, um, that might make some sense with. And I don't make it a point to go back and look at previous sermons. I remember years and years ago reading Charles Spurgeon and his lectures to my students, and he told his students, listen, keep your sermons to weep over. And after I was done laughing about that, then I started crying about that. Um, because it, it, this sermon included about 2 o'clock this afternoon, it probably before that, I'm going to be thinking of all kind of ways I could have done this better uh, than I'm going to try to do it right now. Um, and you think about things that you said, and after reflection, you think, well, someone could have taken this wrong, someone could have taken that wrong. Spurgeon said, listen, keep your sermons to weep over. That's really funny, but it's also quite serious. And... Um, you know, in, in reflection of all of this and combining all of this with uh, the traditions that we all know and love, again, it's easy to approach this particular passage differently and not even notice it. And again, I didn't go back into all my old sermons to see if I've been guilty of that or not. We'll just assume that I have been, and we'll be able to skip that whole exercise. But in this passage that I just read, There is a whole host of theological truths that are put forth in this passage. In fact, I could even say this passage is chocked full of theological truths that are not secondary to the Christian faith. They're actually primary to the Christian faith. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is if we deviate from the theological points that are made in this uh, text of Scripture, as many do, then we cease to be Christian. We cease, actually, to be in the Christian faith altogether. I could put it another way, that if we deviate from the truths that are set forth in this passage, our religion no longer becomes Christian. And that is the significance of the primary things, isn't it? I mean, we have primary things, we have secondary things. And the things that are being put forth in this particular passage of Scripture are primary things. It's not like fussing over the date of the Exodus. You know, when you get to heaven, I don't think God's going to say, give me the date of the Exodus. And if you say, well, I believe it's 1400 I believe it's 1,400. Be sorry, you're out. It's 1,200 or vice versa. Um, It's not those kinds of issues. These issues are primary to our faith. Now, with that in mind, let's take a look at these things. In verse 26, we see a time reference, don't we? In the sixth month, and we may wonder, okay, in the sixth month of what? Three things are important in study of Scripture. What are they? Context, context, and context, right? Well, where have we been? Uh, Last week, we were looking at the angel Gabriel coming and making this announcement to Zechariah, namely that Zechariah and Elizabeth, in their old age, they've never been able to have children, but here they are. Elizabeth is going to conceive. They're going to have a son. And with that in mind, when we come to verse 26, we might be inclined to say, well, it's probably the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Sounds reasonable. 
And as we continue to read down and we get to verse 36, we find that hunch confirmed um, where the angel Gabriel says to Mary, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This would be John the Baptist. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So uh, that hunch is confirmed by the context, the context that comes before and the context that comes after, isn't it? And that's how we study our Bibles, because the Bible is itself the, its best interpreter, isn't it? So, uh, and this is where you'll hear people say that, you know, John the forerunner comes approximately six months ahead of Jesus. We know it can't be any sooner than six months. Perhaps it's seven or eight months. We do not know how much time elapsed after the announcement of Gabriel uh, to the actual conception of Mary, but we're going to assume it was quite soon. So we say six months, maybe seven months, uh, John the Baptist is ahead. As forerunner of the Messiah, he is ahead of Jesus. Now, the second point I want to make before we go on is a point that probably we've heard before on, on some of those books that are still scattered all over the office. Um, some of them make this point that it's interesting um, when we take a look at where the angel went and to who the angel went. If you, if you look there, you see Gabriel, and we've been introduced to Gabriel back in verse 19. Gabriel himself, he introduces himself to Zechariah uh, as an angel. He's one of only two angels who are named in Scripture. And he says that he stands in the presence of God, and that also uh, Luke makes reference of that, that he is sent from God uh, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, what's interesting, and as these writers point out, is that Gabriel is not sent to Rome, which would have been one of the most prestigious cities in the world at that time. Uh, the Roman Empire was the empire. It was the superpower of the world, Rome being the capital of that empire. And it's interesting that Gabriel is not sent to Rome. And it's interesting that Gabriel was not sent to Jerusalem either. And in fact, if we were studying Matthew's account of the birth narrative of Jesus, we would be reflecting on the fact that even though these three, or they say three in the songs, but these magi, sometimes we were tempted to say these three kings because of the songs we sing, but these magis come, um, they come from, they're strange folks coming from a strange land and they, they're carrying gifts and they're saying, we're here to uh, worship he who has been born king of the Jews. Of course, this troubles Herod, and what does Herod do? Uh, he calls the religious leaders at the time together and asks them, well, where, where, would the, where would the Messiah be born? Where would this king be born? And they say Bethlehem. But they don't care enough about it to follow the Magi to Bethlehem to see if it's so, which really says a lot about the religious leaders of that day and that hour, doesn't it? Um, and it's interesting that that Gabriel is not sent to Jerusalem either. But instead, Gabriel is sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. You know, in the past, as I've preached on this text, I've likened Nazareth. If you're trying to think what's Nazareth like and you want to put it into perspective, uh, years ago I was watching a um, documentary on the Vietnam War, and I remember... Uh, the person saying, and uh, the narrator saying, you know, a lot of the, fo the folks that were killed, the soldiers that were killed, and they were from small, unknown towns, such as Wampum, PA. 
And what struck me about that and why I haven't forgotten is I'm like, wampum? Yeah, I know where wampum is. Maybe some of this. How many know where wampum Pennsylvania is? We got a handful. I mean, majority of us. Some of us are like, I've never heard of wampum PA. Well, that's the point. Wampum is just a little bit outside of Beaver Falls. That's where it's at. And if you drive through it, you're not really going to see much of anything. And I'm not trying to take anything away from wampum. But Nazareth is a lot like wampum. Um, it's just a small little town. And, and the point here is that if we were going to design this um, history of salvation, if you will, I think we probably would have been tempted to go to Rome or of Jerusalem. And we would have been tempted to go to a palace. And we would have been tempted to find us a princess, you know, because that makes for a really good story, doesn't it? Uh, but here we're struck with the fact that God's ways are radically different than our own, aren't they? I mean, his ways are so much different. Uh, fa- the fallen heart wants to be noticed. The fallen heart wants the attraction of other people. The fallen heart wants praise of other people. And the fallen heart is always killing itself to get these things. Status, prestige, wealth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And here, well, this is amazing. Who, look what's going on here. Gabriel, an archangel who stands in the presence of God, is being sent out to a place like Wampum. And who is he coming to see? Well, he's coming to see, verse 27, a virgin who is betrothed to a man. This betrothal, let me say a couple words about it, but most of us from coming to Christmas um, services and coming to church on Christmas time, you've heard this many, many times, that a betrothal is like an engagement, but it's more binding. We've heard that before, right? In our culture, let's compare our culture to the ancient culture. In our culture, you can get, you can pretty much get engaged. You can, um, to, uh, you know, a, a man and woman can get engaged, and a ring is exchanged, and they're engaged. And this engagement can be broken as quickly as it's made. There's, and my point is, there's no legal implications. There's no, um, you know, a, a, a corporation is informed uh, in our culture upon engagement as it is upon marriage. Uh, once two parties are married, once a man and a woman are married, well, now a corporation is, infor- is formed and there are legal implications with the state in which this couple resides, correct? And if you want to break that, now you have to, uh, you'll have to enter into divorce proceedings. There's legal implications to this. And this is the case with the betrothal of the ancient world. Uh, Mary and Joseph are betrothed to one another, which is in many ways like an engagement. The actual um, marriage proper hasn't taken place yet. But if they are going to uh, break this relationship, then a divorce is necessary. And we find, uh, we find uh, Joseph contemplating this in, in Matthew, and that's a story for another day. Um, as he discovers that Mary is pregnant, he decides in his heart to divorce her quietly. You know the passage I'm talking about. Well, that, that would have been the proceedings that would have been necessary. And furthermore, what we should know about Mary is typically speaking, and this is, this is ghastly to a lot of people in our current culture, but typically speaking in this culture, a, a, a young girl at the age of 13, 14, or 15, that's typically when this betrothal took place. She's probably a 14-year-old, maybe 13, maybe 15, but probably in all likelihood in that area. 
and she is poor. Uh, she's very poor, and she's in this place called Nazareth. And it is to her that the angel has been dispatched. And in verse 28, uh, we're told that the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, let me stop right there because, as I've said in my introduction, there are a lot of truths in this passage that are primary truths. And if we go sideways on some of these primary truths, we're going to end up with a religion that's not even Christian. And verse 28 is one of those verses. There are a lot of people that misunderstand verse 28. And I mean, there's not hundreds of them. There's not thousands of them. There's not hundreds of thousands of them. I'd go so far to say there are millions of them that misunderstand this passage. When we look at this passage, verse 28, what do we see here? We see the word, Protestants read through this and it probably doesn't even connect with us. Um, what do we see here? Well, we see an angel coming. We see an angel addressing Mary. We see an angel saying, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, what does all that mean? What does it mean? What is, what is Gabriel saying to Mary there? Well, he's saying that she has found God's favor, correct? She has found God's favor. Now, how folks go sideways on this is where they say, okay, Mary here is finding God's favor, if you will. In other words, Mary is finding grace from God, and she is getting so much grace from God that she's filling up with grace, if you will, and then she becomes... A, uh, a depository, if you will, or she becomes one who can now bestow this grace upon others. You follow me? Now, this isn't, I'm not talking about something that's isolated over here and, you know, there's only a few people that follow this and, you know, we're not talking about new light and old light stuff and someone said, what's new light and old light stuff? Don't worry about it. <laughs> you don't need to worry about it. My point is, this isn't something that's going on at a really small scale. It's going on on a very large scale. And you want to ask yourself, how does this come to be? Well, the way that this comes to be is all the way back in the fourth century, when the Bible was translated into Latin, uh, sometimes you'll hear people refer to the Latin Vulgate, uh, or you'll see, you'll see um, initials um, LV, or you'll see initials VUL, um, referring to the Latin Vulgate. That's simply the uh, Vulgate means the, uh, the, verna the vernacular, it means the popular language, if you will, uh, even though most people didn't understand it for the most point. Uh, but the Latin Vulgate becomes the Bible for the West and Christendom for about a millennia, for about a thousand years, roughly. And um, it's the Bible, even though we know that there were myriads and myriads of priests who couldn't read it. Imagine, imagine me standing up here, and I can't read this. I have no idea what it says. All I can do is stand up here and make phonics. You know, you ever hear the word hocus pocus? It comes from that. You look up the etymology of the word hocus pocus, and it's where it comes from. 
where you're just memorizing phonics. You have no idea what these phonics are saying. It'd be like memorizing German, not worrying about what the German is saying, but memorizing German and just rattling off the words without knowing what they say. Uh, And this was the state as you go into the Middle Ages and you go into the Dark Ages. Um, But at any rate, back to this, when, when Jerome and his team translated this verse, uh, verse 28, they translated, O favored one, they translated that as full of grace. Full of grace. Now, uh, the word that's being, trans- that's being um, translated, it's one word in the Greek. In fact, there are two words here that are pertinent. There are two words that are pertinent. Kyrie, or kyra, however you want to pronounce it. And if you're, ever, if you're ever out and trying to pronounce these words, don't let anybody say, oh, that's not how you pronounce it. Don't worry about that. Listen to how they're pronouncing Omicron now. I mean, they're butchering Omicron. And pretty soon, no one's going to know how to pronounce Omicron because they're going to say, no, it's Omicron. Or no, it's Omicron. You know, it's, it's Omicron. But let's not fuss over that. But at any rate, there are two words that are being uh, translated here. Kyra, and it simply means greetings. But it's a greeting that has this jubilant, um, joyous, uh, we wish you well, if you can put all that together. So it's a greeting that also is, is wishing well. Sometimes um, the word, the English word hail will be used, H-A-I-L, hail. Um, that's really not bad. Um, to try to express and try to convey that. And what we need to understand is there isn't always an English word hanging around ready to be translated and able to be directly translated from the Greek word or the Hebrew word for that matter. You know, whenever you're bringing a a language into another language, sometimes you have to use more words to try uh, to capture the sense, if you will, uh, of the original. So here you have this greetings, this joyous greetings. And then the next word that you have, which is karataho, um, this word means to favor, to favor, or to bless, or to bestow. But it's important that we understand this second part. To favor, keratajo, to favor means to favor with the implication that the one who is doing the favoring is doing so graciously. Let me, let me explain this a couple, couple different ways here to, to fully flesh this out. This is a favor that is undeserved. This is a favor that is coming uh, from the mercy, if you will, of the one who is granting the favor. Let me say it one more way that should flesh it out. This favor is not being given to someone because they are favorable. It's being given completely out of mercy and grace. Does that make sense? It's important that we hang on to all of that. Now, um, the, the translation here, full of grace, um, is okay to a point, if you will, as um, A.T. Robertson and some of the other uh, great uh, 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 scholars, if you will, have said. Uh, it's okay as long as we understand that Mary is a, simply a recipient of this. Now, how would, how, why would we say full of grace? Well, because she has received all of this favor, if you will. Uh, she is receiving all of this favor. 
What is favor? Well, sometimes we use the word grace. And we need to be careful when we think about grace that we're not thinking about some substance like water that you like, okay, we have a pitcher and we pour grace into the pitcher and now we've got a pitcher and we can draw from the pitcher grace for ourselves. That's not biblical in any way, shape, or form. The grace is simply grace that God chooses to give um, here's an illustration, and don't pass, don't don't try to press the illustration. Any illustration we give can only be pressed so far. But maybe this will give, maybe give us some idea of what I'm trying to communicate. Let's suppose we're all in a battle, we're all on the same team here, and we're up against we're up against an enemy. We're fighting feverishly against the enemy, but finally we're conquered, and we're brought in front of the king of that enemy. And the king begins to look at us now. We're at his disposal, aren't we? We're at his mercy and his disposal. And I suppose he starts looking along and looking along, and he looks at the front row, and, and he points to Megan. He says, Megan, come here. You, you come over here, and you sit over here. Okay, what has happened to Megan? Megan has just received favor from the king, king of the army that she once fought against. You see, the fallen human heart is fighting against God, isn't he? I mean, isn't that what, what, what we're doing? And Jesus doesn't come to save a bunch of nice folks like us, right? We're nice folks, right? He comes to save rebels, who are, in a, who are opposing him tooth and nail. So by the king looking at Megan and saying, Megan, come on, come, on, come over here and sit. What is he doing? He is showing favor to Megan. Now, in having done that, is it going to do anyone here any good to start calling on Megan? What can she do? Now, how this has gone sideways is this idea of seeing Mary being full of grace, if you will, seeing her so full of grace that now you can begin to call on Mary. And, and th this thing is getting, this thing, you can see this thing's getting sideways. It's getting sideways. Let's, let's step back from our passage of Scripture for a moment, and let's ask this question. Who is this passage of Scripture about? Is it about Gabriel? Well, Gabriel plays a role in it, doesn't he? Gabriel's an important part of this story, is he not? But is he the central figure? No. Is it about Mary? Well, she plays an important role in this, doesn't she? But is she the central figure? Now, some people are going to say, yeah. But that's false. The central figure in our story is Jesus. Now, the more we exalt Mary, the less we're going to exalt Jesus. Does that make sense? 
And in my pastoral prayer, I was talking about idolatry. Probably come out. I didn't script that. I, I, but it's probably coming out because I'm thinking so much about idolatry. This is textbook idolatry. It's to look at anything in creation to give to us only what God could give. Because, you see, as we start going sideways with this, where does it stop? Just with a prayer here or a prayer there? No, it's not where it stops. If you look where, if you look where this is going, um, she now becomes a, a mediatrix, if you will. She becomes a mediator. She becomes someone who stands alongside of Jesus, mediating God's grace between him and between us. She can become a co-redemptress, if you will, where she's a co-redeemer, um, a, a uh, helper, if you will, um, an advocate. These are words that are used for Mary. And someone might say, wait a second, that sounds like an admixture of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's exactly right. It is what it is. And this is where we can really, you see what I'm talking about? These are primary issues. If we go sideways on, what do we end up with? We end up with a religion that is not Christian. It's simply not Christian. And I don't know what time-wise. I'll just watch your faces. I don't know how much time I've used. I knew we were going to use a lot of time on verse 28. But one of the reasons I'm developing this like this is because you recall weeks and weeks ago, I've been saying we, we really need to, I really believe we need to be on the ground running with what we sometimes call pre-evangelism and apologetics. We need to be armed with this. I mean, when you see people doing this, and you hear of people doing this, we need to know how to defend the truth, do we not? And the fact of the matter is, Karataho doesn't say anything about becoming a bestower of grace. That word just does not carry that kind of freight. Karataho means, it means this, it's a verb, and it means to favor with the implication that the one who is doing the favoring, okay, is doing so out of a gracious heart. He's doing so mercifully. But that says nothing about the object of this favor then becoming a dispenser of grace. And we need to keep in mind that these theologies are actually all developed primarily out of verse 28, primarily out of the word keratahu. In verse 28, keratahu is put into a... Uh, let me share this, because sometimes you'll see videos. You can find videos online where people are arguing for this, arguing for Mary as a dispenser of grace. And they'll say, because of the, in the Greek, it's in a certain tense. Listen, in the Greek, it is. It's a participle, and it's a perfect participle. Actually, technically, it's a perfect passive vocative participle. You don't need to remember all that. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Um, I was going to go about this another way, and I was bouncing it off Tammy yesterday afternoon. I said, just keep putting up the Christmas lights and just listen to me. I'm going to bounce this off of you, and you tell me what you think. And she's doing this, and she's doing this. And finally, she stops, and she's staring around, and she's looking. I said, it's a lot, isn't it? She goes, oh, man, it is a lot. But let me say this. If if we use the word, we we do this in our language all the time. If I say ask, Quote Jesus, ask and it shall be given to you. Okay, we're using the verb ask, right? Ask and it shall be given to you. Okay, we in our minds create prepositions out of the word ask all the time. We add an ing to it or we add an ed to it, right? Asking. You know, the student was asking the teacher for the hall pass so he could go to the restroom. 
Okay, we've taken ask and we made a participle out of it, but it hasn't changed the meaning of ask, has it? Um, I haven't thought through if are there any other words in our language that would actually change meaning that radically simply by going from, from an um, infinitive to a, to a participle, and I can't think of any at the moment. But the point is, it's actually irrelevant. The point is, this verb doesn't do that. Uh, it's put in a, 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 in a participle form. It's a perfect participle. Which, what that means is that it's an act that has happened in the past that has continuing effect. And that's what you'll often hear. Well, because it's, a, because it's a perfect, you'll hear people say, who obviously don't know anything about Greek, they've heard this somewhere and they're aping it, and they'll say, because it's a perfect, you know, it's, um, it's got this effect, it goes on forever. Well, that's correct. A perfect does have that effect. But the effect is not being a dispensary of grace. The effect that continues on forever is the fact that Mary has found God's favor. Is he going to favor her and then turn away from her later? And someone will say, well, Rick, could you give us just a little bit more proof? I'm so glad you asked because I would love to do that. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I'll wrap it up with this because probably, we're probably racking our brains pretty hard right now. But this is so important. In Ephesians 1... We have Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And you've heard me say this many times. To who? To the saints who are in Ephesus. Okay, these, these are believers. This, this letter is being written to the believers in Ephesus. And through them, it's been given to us, right? It's being written to the church, to, to true believers who are in the church. Because um, we're told they are in Ephesus and they are faithful in Christ Jesus, Right? This is everybody who's in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now guess which word is used in ble to, to bless there. He has blessed us in the beloved. It's the word keretaho. Now here's my point. If this verb carries the freight of not only receiving the blessing, but also becoming a person who now can bestow that blessing that's been received, then this has to speak of all of us. Now, who's going to argue for that? Maybe somebody. Maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't know. There could be some crazies out there doing that. They're doing everything else. Why not do that? Um, I don't know. Maybe someone is doing that. But we would look at that and we'd think that is really radically like out there. My point is it's the same verb. We receive, but in receiving, listen, there's one who can bestow blessing upon us. And he is God in the flesh, amen? There's one who can bestow grace upon us, and it's the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, I think that's probably good for this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we so thank you as we, as we plow through some of these issues, Father, as we look to your text and we look to your text this way, Father. Here we see that how quickly things can go sideways, oh, Father, really by misunderstanding one word, taking one participle and misunderstanding it, Lord, we can see how radically that our religion can become something that is no longer even Christian. Oh, Father, we pray that, Lord, you'll help us to come to understand these things and to come to understand them so well that we can come alongside of people who probably maybe have never even called to question these practices, maybe have never even thought about where's the biblical warrant for these practices. Father, we find no biblical warrant for looking to Mary for grace of any kind. And, Lord, we, you, you've given us many sermons that are preached by the apostles. As we look at the book of Acts, we, we find nothing that the apostles uh, are recommending that those whom they are ministering to um, call on Mary. Oh, Father, we pray that you, you will help us, oh, Father. Help us, oh, Lord, to, to tuck this truth in our hearts and, and to be useful in love, oh, Lord. I pray that you'll fill us with love, that we would do this in love because some of these um, perspectives are held so dearly. Uh, oh, Father, but in love, you will help us, O oh Lord, to come alongside of those who are looking to someone else other than Christ or are so distant and believe that, Lord, to appease you, they probably have a better chance of asking Mary to appease you than to come themselves. Yet, Lord, you, you bid us to come directly to us. Jesus says, come to me. And, O oh Lord, I pray that you will open up eyes and open up hearts through this Christmas season that folks will see that they can come to you and that their prayer requests are just as important as anyone else's prayer requests, that anyone in this room this morning who prays to you, their prayer concerns are just as important to you as they are if I pray to you, or they're just as important to you if anyone else would pray. So, O oh Father, we pray that, Lord, you will look upon our land and look upon this world, O oh Father, with grace, and that, Father, you will call people out of this grave error uh, that is such a grave error that it really does um, create another religion. So, oh, Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.